Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. My name is Rebecca. And we are two members of the JLU podcast team. The other contributors to our Wonder Woman analysis are Alessandro Maniscalco and Sydney. We come together to analyze the DC films released by Warner Brothers Studios. You can find all of us on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. And you can find some of us on Vero, but I, uh, if people are wondering, I'm not on Vero because I don't have a smartphone, and apparently Vero is really only available for smartphones right now. So uh, if they have like a browser-based thing or even a tablet thing, I could do it, but smartphone is a no-go for me. Yeah, you got to get on Vero. It's good stuff. Just for Zack Snyder alone, it seems like it's worth it to go over there. <laughs> In this episode, though, we're going to be discussing scene 38 of Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. This is the big gala scene with Steve, Maru, Ludendorff, and then, of course, uh, Diana in the famous blue dress. So, first of all, let's just talk about the scene overall. I mean, first of all, it's an iconic scene. Like, like I mentioned, that blue dress is something that when it hits your eyeballs, you're going to remember it. They did a great job of having that color really stick out and the lighting on it. On top of that, the sword like tucked in the back and the kind of the, the imagery and symbolism of this elegant, beautiful, feminine kind of outfit, but with the violence and power and everything of the God Killer sword inside of it. So, I mean, that's one thing. It's it's one of those memorable scenes where, you, you know, people will always know like, oh, yeah, Wonder Woman, the original movie had this gala scene in it. Yeah, she when she walks in, everybody stops and looks at her, <laughs> uh, including Ludendorff. Uh, so she is a, she is definitely and literally a scene stealer in this one. Mm-hmm. Another big thing about this movie is the character meetups. So we've got Steve and Doctor Poison um, having interaction together. Actually, you know, a way for your hero and your villain to actually talk to each other. And then you have Diana and Ludendorff right face to face, dancing cheek to cheek, and they get to actually have dialogue with each other as well. So this was kind of a creative way to have a sort of act two meet up between your heroes and villains before like, of course, the final showdown at the very end of the movie. Yeah, this scene gives our heroes a chance to interact with the villains. So I think that's a really cool way to look at it as well is they've they've been talking about stopping these people, Dr. Poison and Ludendorff, and here in this scene, they actually come face-to-face with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing I would say that's a big thing about this scene is we have the, the arc of Diana and Steve's personal relationship with each other, and that has gone to a new place, like the previous night, obviously, and it had been building up to that, I think, very effectively throughout the whole movie. But now this scene gives us a turning point um, between Diane and Steve. So they had grown together, and now this scene puts kind of some tension back into that relationship, which makes for good drama. Yeah, their their honeymoon, as it were, did not last too long, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so I think this scene, is it's not only visually iconic, um, but it's, it's kind of a really important turning place uh, in the plot overall and in the character development and stuff. So... Let's go ahead and go into the scene uh, in detail. So Aline Bonetto is the production designer, and she selected the interior for the scene. And uh, it's Hatfield House in Hertfordshire, which is in England, I'm assuming. Um, but she loved the the length. And I'm looking at the opening shot of the scene, and it does have nice depth to it. it gives it kind of this grandiosity, um, which is really fitting for the scene. But Bonetto said that she also really liked this dark wood. And she said it gives a close, oppressive feel. And she liked that for kind of looking elegant, but also kind of putting us on edge. Because 
Diana arrives and we are wondering like, what's she going to do? Like, is she going to confront Ludendorff right in front of all these people or what's going to happen? <laughs> Bonetto thought that the space kind of matched that sort of tension that's underlying the elegance. Yeah. And I think it does it to uh, an excellent degree. <laughs> the lighting is really cool too. There's like the candle, uh, candelabra in the middle of the room, but then there's these kind of lights around the, the side and it gives it this kind of like warm glow and stuff. Uh, we don't realize it yet, but that lighting has been very purposely set up so that the blue really like pops out and they light Diana really effectively later. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the first uh, part of the scene though is um, Dr. Maru uh, at the fireplace warming her hands a little bit. She's got her face plates on and everything and, and then Steve brings over a drink. So he's going to try to do a little bit of his spy work. Yeah, he uh, comes over and he's he's undercover. He has a, a, a military uniform on. He's got an accent that he's speaking with. And he's trying to flirt with her to get her to give him some answers, to get her on his side. Um, and I, I think that that's really interesting. He, he, <laughs> he tries to charm her by talking about how, uh, how much of a fan he is and how talented she is. And he even says things could, that could really be taken as flirting. He says, I've been watching you. <laughs> following your career i mean uh, so he does he tries not to come off as a creep but he is trying to uh win mm -hmm. her over a little bit mm -hmm. and i like that because i think in some ways it's either i can't determine if it's a parallel or if it's a contrast to diana because hmm. he's flirting with maru which he sort of does with diana so there's a parallel there but the way uh everything happens towards the end where maru kind of rejects him it's it's a little bit of a contrast mm -hmm. so i like that it's sort of and especially uh when diana comes in that's when maru finally says no i know you're playing me i'm, I'm not going to deal with you anymore mm -hmm. uh, so i like that there's a, a diana aspect of of what's going on here yeah, I like that kind of idea of thinking about this to Diana. Um, and for me, I thought it was fun, too, to just see some spy work, like where a lot of spy work is you have to read people and you have to try to find your angle to try to get you know in with the person. Earlier, we saw his spy work just in terms of grabbing the notebook and getting away. But this is really the other time that we see him trying to use some of his skills. Like you're probably trained for finding that opening and deciding on your tactic to try to like earn some trust or get the person to open up to you and reveal some information. And so he has decided to take this kind of flirting kind of approach that maybe, maybe he's thinking, okay, I'm, I'm looking at this Dr. Maru. She's got a high stress job. She has this disfigurement on her face and maybe the possibility of a human connection and a little bit of even, you know, sexual interest might be a way to get her to open up. You know, it wasn't just, writing a flirting scene because filmmakers like to write flirting scenes. I thought it, it did make sense for how he might try to get her to let her guard down. And he's not just purely flirting. He's doing it very skillfully where he's trying to show some interest in her work and saying like, I'd, I'd like to see what you're working on. Like, so he's also trying to keep an angle towards finding out about the poison and how they're going to release it, when they're going to release it, that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's also uh, not just trying to, I guess, get information, but he, he tries to act like he's recruiting her mm -hmm. away from Ludendorff. So, uh, so whatever he can use to get her on his side, if that is you know, uh, some sort of sexual tension or uh, being charming or whatever, uh, he's, he's going to do whatever he can to 
fill in the gaps of what Ludendorff isn't so that she'll, you know, uh, come over to his side. I was curious, what what did you think about the the fact that uh, Steve offers her a drink Mm -hmm. and she doesn't take it? Yeah, so, I mean, my first reaction to it was just, like, it's an interesting dynamic where she's showing I'm going to be, like, a little bit of a difficult nut-to-crack kind of thing. You know, like, she's not going to play right into his hands of whatever he's trying. But he he perseveres, and he's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of keep at this, see if I can find any sort of opening. So that was how I, like, read it overall. It is kind of interesting, though, like, maybe it reveals something about her character, and maybe it's, like, a little bit of a hint about something else that she's dealing with. Like, is this a moral stance? Does she have a bad history with it? Like, you know, is this a little hint at something in her backstory or something like that? And I wonder, like, if the actress and Patty Jenkins or the screenwriter if they ever talked about some historical meaning to her for her as a character to reject the alcohol. It's kind of just, we're not given the answer, but it's something you could just think about or wonder about. Yeah, I was thinking about it. It might be something in her backstory or something that she had dealt with uh, before that made her not want to drink. But I hadn't considered what you were talking about initially was that the fact that it was almost like uh, Steve was trying to woo her with the drink and she rejects him, and sort of, so it's a, almost a metaphorical uh, rejection of his flirtation. Uh, so I, I like thinking about it like that, too. Mm-hmm. It is kind of interesting, too, because like, in one sense, alcohol is a poison. Like, you mm. have alcohol poisoning and stuff, and so this Dr. Poison does not put alcohol in her body, but she will manufacture these deadly poisons for, you know, to use on other people and stuff. So it it's something you could just overlook and not even really notice it, but it is kind of, there's some interesting things there to think about. Um, and they, they deliberately put it in because they blocked it with him bringing over both drinks and they made it very explicit that she's declining the drink. And she said, I think she says, it's not just that she isn't thirsty or she doesn't want it now. She says like, I don't drink, right? Like as if it's a matter of fact, right? It's like a personal stance that she doesn't drink or something. Yeah, and I really love the idea that Dr. Poison won't put poison in her body. I <laughs> love that. That's nice, Sam. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it till you asked about it. And then it's kind of funny because Steve ends up drinking the one that he was offering to her. So he's kind of like, all right, I'll just have both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? So he's he's putting it in his body. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have the same qualms. Yeah. So... Uh, he, she says, you know, like, we haven't met. And this is where he says, I've been watching you, which is he does definitely have a kind of undertone to that. And then he clarifies following your career. But he definitely put in the little flirt first. And he, he now appeals to her, maybe her confidence in herself. He says he's a talented chemist and he's a fan of her work. He's giving her some male attention, but he's also kind of giving her compliments about her profession. And she seems like the kind of person where her profession is a big, big part of her life, you know. Yeah, she she seems like the kind of person who would like compliments, especially about her work, and would want accolades for it because she she works hard. She works a lot of hours. She puts in a lot of time, and uh, so it seems like she is doing this uh, because she wants to do big things. But of course, these are terrible things that she's doing. Um, but yeah, I think he does sort of play on the fact that maybe she does. Uh, wants some kudos for what she's done or she she wants attention for the things she's done Mm -hmm. and then he kind of angles in um where he says you know you've been working with ludendorff but if you have somebody like me i could provide a lot more so he's kind of he's trying to imply that he might be even higher up the ranks or more powerful than ludendorff which 
seems unlikely, but she is at least kind of wondering like, who, you know, who are you that you are kind of trying to position yourself above Ludendorff? That's a pretty high post, but he's very cryptic, which I'm sure spies are trained to be kind of cryptic. And when, when somebody starts asking you questions, you divert attention as a spy. You want to be the one asking the questions. You don't want them to be probing you too much. Yeah. I think, I think Steve would go into this wanting to be in control of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So he shifts it over to the fire. Um, she had been standing at the fire, and then um, he says, I love fire, don't you? So trying to connect with her kind of on this topic, maybe trying to show that like we see the world in the same way or something. Um, and he calls it a living act of entropy. So I know a little bit about entropy. I know you looked it up a little bit, but I think the colloquial kind of like meaning of entropy is um, a measure of the disorder. So like entropy means like things that are nicely organized will gradually get more disordered and things will start to get strewn about instead of like tight, neat and tidy. And this is kind of like universal scale and um, regular scale, micro scale um, stuff kind of like scatters and spreads. I think in a technical sense, entropy means like um, it's a measure for the dispersal of energy. So like if energy is condensed in one place, it will try to spread itself out. And so that fire actually does kind of make sense. Like there's all this energy inside of the wood or whatever and then the fire is releasing that energy and spreading it out more it's kind of a natural process that that energy spreads rather than staying like cooped up and contained yeah i knew it had something to do with physics but since i'm not a physicist i had to look up (laughs) actually what entropy was Um, so it is related to physics but uh, the definition i found was that it was lack of order or predictability and it's a gradual decline into disorder and i thought that that Mm -hmm. that really captured what a fire is you know a fire can be unpredictable and it can lead to bad things if it it gets out of control so yeah i think i think that's a good visual depiction of, of what a fire is yeah and like fire naturally wants to spread and wreak its havoc farther and wider like you have to be very purposeful about keeping fire contained you know and if you slip up at all, it's going to get away from you and start to spread. And so that that chaos and disorder can start to take off. That's kind of the nature of fire. Um, you know, playing with fire, that kind of idea and stuff. The playing with fire is kind of implying like it's it is going to get away with, away from you at some point. I think this has a lot of meanings, right? Like so that's kind of like the literal meanings of entropy, but in this context, you know, you could view war as the fire, like war is going to spread to more war or violence is going to lead to more violence and it's going to just end up spreading this disorder and pain and destruction like farther around. And Dr. Maru, you could view her as kind of like this agent of entropy. Like she is actually one of the people who is strewing the disorder and she's making the gases that are being used to wreak this havoc around. So it's connected to a lot of the bigger ideas of the movie as well. Yeah, I was about to say that even mankind could could be considered uh, an agent of entropy where where sometimes we might have good intentions, uh, but we can uh, unintentionally do something that gets out of control or we can be unpredictable. And I think that plays into uh, one of Steve's speeches at the end of the film about how, you know, we're all to blame for these things. Uh, so I, I think that that could apply to not only just to the fire, but also to, to humans. Hmm. Yeah, and I think also just the fact that we are interacting with the villains here to connect with fire, it makes sense. As I, I think you mentioned this in our notes that like fire is just a very common thing to kind of associate with villains. Um, so just on that basic level, it kind of makes sense here too. Even without the idea of entropy, just the 
imagery of fire and ash, you know, returning to ash and that sort of thing. Um, it makes sense to have in a scene that features the villains. Yeah, I've, I've noticed a lot that uh, you'll see uh, sometimes with villains, you'll see fires or fireplaces like villains hanging out by the fire. Um, and especially in the DCEU, we've seen Lex Luthor by a fireplace. Um, El Diablo, oh, of yeah. course, had fire powers in uh, Suicide Squad. He turned into a hero at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But there are some previous villains in the DCU before Wonder Woman where this is associated with them. Uh, I think it's like a hell thing, like a mm. devil hell thing. That's that's how I always associate it with them, when a villain is uh, associated with fire. So, uh, I, yeah, I like when uh, stories do that. Yeah, and then there's this really interesting turn because... <laughs> Entropy and fire has all has all this negativity and stuff connoted with it, but then he turns it around and tries to make it a very flirtatious line. He looks at her and he says, I see all of that in your eyes. And like the way he says it is kind of like, oh, this is like a line, you know, like a romantic <laughs> line. But like we've just been saying all the all the destruction and the wreaking havoc and all this stuff of and the disorder. But from a certain point of view, that can be beautiful as well like oh this fire this release of energy or even the like you know something moving into disorder could be beautiful in a sense like a waterfall is like this water just scattering over the edge and stuff but it can be beautiful from one point of view or fireworks you know like bursting have this beauty to it as well so from a point of view you could find the beauty in entropy and he's kind of turning that like he's trying to see like is this a connection we could have like if you're into this kind of stuff, then I'm going to try to play on that and and bring it around to try to you know build up a sort of connection between us that I can turn into um, some intelligence gathering, basically. Yeah, Steve is trying every angle that he can with Maru <laughs> to see what will work. And I really like the line that he says about everything returns to the ash it came from. Um, and I thought that was really fitting for Steve's character uh, specifically because by the end of the film he will die in a fire, essentially. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so uh, that's that's really something that I think uh, connects, that line connects to his character. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. I had, I had not made that, but I think that's definitely right. Everything returns to the ash, and he, unfortunately, he is going to do that by the end. Another little foresh- There's quite a few foreshadowings of his death once you look for him. Now, I think he is actually making some progress with Maru. Like, she is, she's looking at him, and she's kind of, like, you know, weighing this. Like, oh, like, he's interested in my work. He's Maybe he sees the world in a similar way as I do, and he's saying we could work together or something. And to me, she's, like, considering it now for the first time. And then it all gets thrown. <laughs> it all gets a wrench thrown into <laughs> it. A, a beautiful blue wrench. Yes, uh, I agree. I think Maru considered him for a little bit, uh, but then when his attention turned to that other pretty lady, I mean, I I don't want this to sound bad about Maru, but she has a disfigurement on her face. She has something that she has to cover up in her her physical uh, appearance. Mm -hmm. So when this other woman who shows up, this beautiful woman in this beautiful dress, uh, stops the room every you know you could hear like that you know record scratching moment where everybody kind of s- stops and looks at her that's when the facade of him flirting with her stops because she realizes the reality of the situation that mm-hmm. he probably is not really into her or her work he's just trying to get something out of her because his attention has gone to that that pretty lady who, sh- who showed up so yeah I think I think Diana's entrance into the scene is what stops all of that 
Yeah, and you mentioned the kind of record scratch moment. I mean, they do it really smoothly here with the the focus of the camera. It's like focused on Maru in the foreground, and then they shift the focus to Diana in the background, which is, of course, where like Steve's focus is and where the other people kind of end up having their focuses because she's making her entrance. Um, and so I thought that was a cool just filmmaking way to bring about that entrance. And then Maru turns and looks at her too. So we're, you know, the focus and the attention and then the close up or the kind of medium shot all bring us right to Diana. Um, and I like the, there's some lighting from the back of her, which kind of gives her this like glowing kind of uh, outline. It's all just like a, a masterclass in filmmaking, I think, in terms of this moment. Yeah, the, they really made her coming into this scene a big deal because it should have been because this is her her first meeting with Ludendorff. This is a big moment for Diana. So I, I really like that they made this into a, a big moment for her. Yeah, and it's it's emphasized too by like Steve. who Like we know like Steve is probably freaking out in his own mind. Like why is she here? What's she going to do? Like, he's, <laughs> he's now realizing like, oh crap, uh, I'm, I'm out of, you know, I don't have control over what's about to happen. So I think that emphasizes the, the entrance as well. Cause we know that Steve is working on something and he's being all crafty and stuff. And he was not anticipating that Diana would just walk in. Yeah. He, he was close to achieving his goal, uh, in his undercover work. And she sort of put a stop to that, mm-hmm. uh, unintentionally, but she, but she did anyway. Yeah. And now that I think about it, I mean, yet another thing that emphasizes this moment. So that everything all works together, right? This is good filmmaking is the previous scene where Diana stops the lady and looks at her dress and it's kind of like her, she's thinking about how she can get into the gala, but it's all unspoken. Even that emphasizes this moment because we saw that blue dress on a different woman and we saw Diana looking at it and now it's like, boom, now she's wearing it. It's on, she's in the gala. That was almost a a preface to this moment as well and it all works together. Yeah, and we don't really see the blue dress in full on that lady because I think she's got a, a cape or a, a coat on over it. And so it doesn't fit her that well. Yeah, yeah so we don't, we don't actually get to see the reveal of the dress until Diana shows up in, in, into the, uh, I, I don't know if it's a dance hall, but, you know, the, the big room at the gala. Mm-hmm. One final thing, though, with Maru here, I do like her line where she says, I appreciate your interest in my work, but I'm loyal to General Ludendorff. So this is kind of like, okay, she's shutting it down. And then she says, now I see your attention is elsewhere. And she does that Maru pause and then really (laughs) articulates the last word. So I just like it that even though she's not a, a major character, I thought it was cool that they gave her that little calling card of doing a dramatic pause and then like giving her final word. She does have a, a, a cadence in how she speaks. So, all right, center center frame. We've got Diana walking away from center frame with a sword in the back of her dress, and we have Ludendorff center frame coming towards her. So very powerful framing, and they are about to meet. We, we know that Diana thinks this is Ares. Like, so it's not just Ludendorff. In her mind, this is the god of war. It's her mission as an Amazon to try to stop him. So... A big moment, and they come together, and the tension builds, and then all of a sudden, he grabs her and starts dancing, which I thought was kind of just a fun little moment to have as well. Yeah, that plays against the expectation of what he could do to her, uh, like physically. Like, would he physically try to stop her in that moment, or is he asking her to dance? Uh, So, yeah, I I think that that 
it is kind of uh, the tension is palpable when she's walking towards him. And so that unexpected clash of them uh, joining together to, to dance is very unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it plays into the gala and then gives them a chance to speak up close where nobody else can hear what they're saying. So I, I, I definitely like the way they did that. Yeah, and I'm, uh, we talked, you and I were talking about a prior scene where Diana thinks that this is Aries and she kind of figures it out while they're on the phone with Sir Patrick. We said that she was kind of overly confident and she must not be 100% confident that this is Aries because she was within striking distance and she did not just grab her sword and try to slash him down. So to me, that means she probably wants to confirm her suspicion. She thinks it's Ares, and she wants to interact with him a little bit to see if she's right. And as soon as she thinks she's right, then she's going to strike. But it means she's coming into this, she was not 100% certain. She had a little bit of doubt, and she wanted to, I think, still just get a little bit more evidence and, and see if she can confirm. Well, and the things he says to her in this scene really (laughs) seemed to to confirm confirm her suspicions. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was good writing like about the value of war. Um, And does he even at one point say like war is a God, right? Yes. He's talking in very grandiose terms about war. Yeah. He, he seems to suggest that he's Aries by understanding the fact that the ancient Greeks understood that war is a God. And the fact that Aries is the God of war seems to suggest some things. And, Uh, He even uh, talks about Thucydides uh, through the dialogue, uh, peace is only an armistice in an endless war. And that was a quote that I didn't know. So I tried to do some digging on that. And I came across an article that was like, uh, this may not actually be a real quote by (laughs) Thucydides. Uh, It's, it's, I think it, from what I understand, that's a, it's a quote that's often attributed to Thucydides, but it's one of those things where it popped up on the internet and then it sort of spread around the internet, but scholarly texts don't really uh, have any basis for it. Uh So I thought that that was really interesting. I was like, now I'm really curious about this quote. But yeah, there's some things that he he says, and he even talks about how uh, war as a god requires human sacrifice, and in exchange, war gives man purpose and meaning to rise above mm-hmm. petty mortal selves and, and to be courageous. And so I think that the fact that he talks in those terms, and he seems to know what he's talking about, and he seems very sure about war and about gods and the ancient Greeks, and that really, I think for Diana, that's like, all oh, my, you know, alarms are going off and all the f- flags are being raised and so that's when she she reaches for that sword at the end of the scene is that she she really thinks he is Aries now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's good writing cuz he the way he's talking it, it sounds like the way that a god of war would talk like he's seeing a value and a higher purpose in war, you know, it's it's not something that you do as a last resort. It's actually something that really has benefits and you know, a higher calling and stuff. And it's interesting that that is not too far off of the real General Ludendorff. Like, he actually did think that war pushes society to, like, reach higher heights. And Thucydides, or whatever, however you say it, um, it's interesting that that one is not totally realistic. Although Thucydides did write about how, like, human nature is such that it will often lead to wars. Like, we have things that are just natural about us that 
at the end of the line means we are probably going to have conflicts with each other and that's kind of part of what humanity is like that idea is there um but yeah this the exact quote about like peace being temporary or peace just being time between wars or something might not be exactly what thucydides said but i think the writers kind of had fun playing around with real characters and then fusing them into this dialogue here yeah, I think this scene is really well acted. And even with the, the music, when Diana walks up to Ludendorff, you hear a little bit of that Wonder Woman theme coming in. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but in Pixicato or something kind of. Yeah, it's really subtle, but it comes in. And, and I really like, the, I mean, the the tension building here is very, very good. And the fact that you're hanging on to every word, or at least I am, I'm hanging on to every word that Ludendorff is saying because I'm I'm with Diana. I'm like, this seems to suggest that he might be Aries. Yeah. So I, I, I like that it really, it puts me in this scene with her. Well, plus seeing the sword when she's walking up also puts us on the edge of our seat because we were wondering, okay, when is that sword going to come out? Because it's like Chekhov's sword in the oh, back yeah. of her dress oh, yeah. there. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that definitely lots of things are building the tension here. It's really effective. And one thing for me too, like not while I was watching it, but later when I was thinking back on it, I was kind of contrasting the way Ludendorff talks about war with the way that Hippolyta talked about war um, back on Themyscira. And here he's saying, you know, war is actually can be a good thing and it can give people purpose. But Hippolyta was saying pretty much the opposite. Like she was saying heroes don't have to fight and you shouldn't really want to go to war, you know. So I thought it's a nice contrast between Hippolyta and Ludendorff here. Yeah, and I even think that there's a, a contrast to the ending of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice where, you know, Ares is saying that war gives man purpose and meaning. And I, I think about Bruce Wayne and how his his vengeance and his uh, need to kill Superman was what gave him his meaning and, and he thought that that would be his legacy. But in the end... I think what gives the people Metropolis and Bruce Wayne and even Diana at that point in her life, what gives them meaning is carrying on Superman's torch and being heroes to each other uh, and for the world. So I, I think it's really interesting that the god of war would have the complete opposite view of that and the more cynical view of humanity, uh, wherein uh, the, these heroes have the view that, you know, war is not what gives you purpose. It's, you know, trying to do the right things and, and find good in life. Mm. So I, I really think that's really fitting that Aries would take that stance. Yeah, that's a great point. Now here, I think uh, Gal Gadot did a nice job acting here where she's kind of like processing what he's saying. And you can kind of see her thinking about it. And to me, I think she's like becoming fully convinced now that this is Aries. Um, but I think she sells it well as like the, okay, I'm, I'm hearing what he's saying and this has got to be the God of war. So that's why it moves her to actually, she's going to act, um, right now as he's kind of stepping away. She's like, okay, this is my chance. And it goes to the slow-mo here as she goes to reach for the sword. Um, and we are, especially the first time I watched this, right? It's like, okay, what is about to happen here? And then good old Steve comes in (laughs) and just stops her right in her mid motion now, he stops her, but she must have kind of allowed herself to be stopped, too. Because, like, Steve couldn't really stop her if if she wanted to do whatever she's going to do. That's true. She could have pushed him easily out of the way. She could have thrown him across the room. Mm-hmm. Nothing would have stopped her if she really wanted to do that. So I think that is a good point, that maybe there was uh, a part of her who was hesitant 
to do it, even though she she knew instinctively that she needed to get that sword out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that for Diana, you know, thinking in terms of her fighting and her training from Themyscira, she probably wouldn't have thought about her surroundings. She would just think of the action that she needed to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Steve, I think, is thinking, you can't do that here. This is not the place to do this. And so I, I think he, she needed him to be that person who stepped in and said, if you want to go up against him, you can do it, just not here, not at this time. Right, and Diana's mission is to stop, find and kill Ares. Steve's mission is to gather the information they need about the poison and the bombs and stuff so that they can try to stop those. So like, as a spy, you don't kill your potential informant or you don't kill somebody that you're tailing to try to like find out where they're going. You follow them to where they're going because you need to get to that destination. So I think for Steve, he's like, don't turn this whole party into turmoil and don't kill Ludendorff. We're trying to actually follow and find out where they're going, where their next move is going to be. So they have, you know, different goals here. But, you know, they talk. Um, Diana is saying, like, no, I'm I'm stopping Ares. That's my mission. And then Steve says, like, what if there is no Ares? Like, this is where he finally reveals, like, I'm not sure if I 100% buy the... Ares, God of War, whole angle on this stuff, right? He's been kind of harboring that secret all along. Now he kind of lets it out, like, hey, this is the turning point. I need to actually say that I'm not positive about your fairy tale Greek gods kind of story stuff. And so this is a big moment for the the two of them together. Yeah, especially uh, having connected like they did and for him to doubt her would uh, be, I would think, a little devastating for Diana for her to be so much about belief and love and and he here he is not fully believing her. Right. And you're right. It's it's the day after they just connected in like a very intimate way. So that's got to hurt even more than if he had like said this at the beginning or something like that. So it definitely throws a a bit of an emotional curveball into the stuff that they're they're going through together. And then we have the one final thing here in this great scene, um but Steve says, "I can't let you do this." which sets up uh, one of Diana's most iconic lines. And I'll let you have that line. I think it's more fitting for you to have it. (laughs) Yeah, she says, what I do is not up to you. And I think that's uh, great because it plays into that idea that she is her own character, that she's her own person, that she's not going to be told what to do, especially by a man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but I like that uh, Steve he's trying to get her to do the right thing and she's thinking of her mission only and what she needs to do but i think it's a cool line for wonder woman because it is very empowering for her to be able to make her own decisions and do her own thing but but part of me thinks that uh even though it's awesome that diana does have this empowering line and this attitude that she's uh, she's going with here i also part of part of me's like Maybe listen to Steve. Maybe he's gotten you this far. Maybe uh, consider what he's telling you. So it's a, it's an awesome line, though, because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially from like the 70s TV show and even her comic adaptations, a lot of people see Wonder Woman as this feminist figure who uh, who stands for uh, female empowerment. And so for her to say that, I think, is a is a big moment in the scene. And a big moment in the movie. It was a a big trailer line that happened. So a lot of people remember that. So I I think it's a it's a it's a mixed emotion for me because while I think it's an awesome line Mm -hmm. that uh, depicts Wonder Woman's character, I'm also like, "Eh, 
maybe Steve has a point. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm a little mixed on it, but I think it's a, a really cool line there. Yeah. It's definitely one of those lines where it's just great to have a line like this in, you know, the first big blockbuster um, female superhero movie that has a female director and all that stuff. So just the the cultural moment that was the Wonder Woman movie, I think it, it deserves having some lines like that. So I think it's just good for that broader context in addition to being good in the movie itself. But with regard to what you're saying about like, what I do is not up to you, but she's so that's great empowerment, but she's actually about to like make a mistake because right. Ludendorff is, is not actually Aries. But I would say that's okay, right? Like women should have agency and they don't need permission from men. And sometimes women are going to be right and sometimes they might be wrong. But either way, they would actually don't need permission from men to like do what they're going to do. To me, it's kind of like um, Patty Jenkins was saying and others have said women characters can be strong and powerful but they can also be beautiful. Like, don't just push them into one box. They can be in multiple boxes at the same time. I would, And that's kind of like the idea of, like, full feminism is not just to be tough and everything, but full feminism is I can be beautiful and sexy if I want to and also tough, and one doesn't exclude the other. And then here, maybe full feminism means what I do is not up to you, and if it doesn't turn out perfectly, you know what? It still wasn't up to you. It was still my choice to do something, you know? It's to me. It's kind of like a if you had kind of a chauvinistic kind of man, maybe like a husband and a wife, and the husband is kind of like a male chauvinist kind of guy. And if he says to his wife, like, "Okay, I'll I'll let you do that thing. Fine, go for it." And then if it doesn't work out perfectly, then that husband comes back like, "Should have listened to me. It didn't work out great, did it?" You know, it's like you hate that guy. <laughs> it's like shut up. Like just because it didn't work out perfectly doesn't mean that I should have listened to you. And in this case, Steve has a point, but I would still say Diana has the right to shove him aside, even if she's wrong. Yeah, so like even if it's her fault, it's still her choice to fail. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's still, uh, you know, she still um, has the ability to make the choice on whether or not she goes after Ludendorff. I think that the line ends up being true because she does still go after Ludendorff even if Steve doesn't totally buy into it she still goes after him anyway so uh, i think that line uh ends up being uh, a true statement so that is our analysis of scene 28 of wonder woman and one final thing about the scene uh, we wanted to give uh credit to uh, someone on twitter at draco malfoy's uh f thought fitzgerald he's the one that noticed uh, a nice connection between diana's blue dress here in the movie and an episode of the Wonder Woman TV show from the 70s. Um, and that in that show, Linda Carter wore a blue dress that's not exactly the same, but it has a kind of similar shape and definitely a similar color. Um, so if you look at Draco Malfoy's on Twitter, made that nice connection where there might have been a little bit of a costume homage to the original Linda Carter show. Um, and maybe we'll be seeing Linda Carter in the next Wonder Woman movie. We'll have to look forward to see if that happens or not. Um, But that's it for us here. In our next episode, we are going to switch over to Justice League for a moment and meet Barry Allen. Then we'll be back for Wonder Woman to ramp up into Act 3. We want to give our normal shout-outs to the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel Answers. And thanks to all of our listeners for your support. We really appreciate it. And if you want to uh, get some bonus content and get entered into some giveaways, we have some other tiers available for our patrons. You can find the show at patreon.com slash jlupodcast.